All right, we are uh, beginning a new series this morning looking at Elijah and Elisha, our summer series. And so if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 16 is where we're going to pick up in the account there. 1 Kings chapter 16. I'm not going to read the whole text. We're going to read all the way through 1724 this morning, but because it's so long to save a little bit of time, I'm going to just kind of take it section by section so that it's fresh on your mind. So for our introduction to this series, we're going to be, give you a little bit of background as what's going on when Elijah comes on the scene. Hear God's word, 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29, and then reading through 17, verse 1. It says this, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab, that's a pole that they used for worship. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now 17 verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. This ends the reading of God's word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. The end of 1 Kings is telling us about the life of Israel at this point. Uh, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, as well as 1 and 2 Chronicles, is giving us an historical account uh, of the life and the history of Israel. And at this point, here's where we find ourselves. After Solomon, the son of David, the wise one, reigned, the nation of Israel broke up into two parts. The southern kingdom, which included Judah primarily and the Levites, and the northern kingdom, which is the other ten tribes of Israel. The southern kingdom had one great advantage— It was where Jerusalem was and where the temple was. And so the northern kingdom and their kings didn't like this. And so they began to create for themselves new worship sites so that their people would not head south to Judah, to uh, Jerusalem, to worship. And what we see is that one king after another, they erect worship sites to various pagan and Canaanite gods. And as the history of Israel went on, they tended to get worse. Every once in a while, there might be a king who was a little bit better, but they get worse and worse until we get to the worst one, Ahab. And Ahab, who was pretty evil all by his lonesome, uh, went and married the daughter of the king of Sidon, and her name is Jezebel. Now, if you've never heard the story of Jezebel, you at least know the name. Just like as nobody names their kid Adolf anymore, no one names their daughter Jezebel. We don't have little girls named Jezzy running around the sanctuary every Sunday. She is, she is a, a, known as the evil woman, the evil witch of sorts in the Old Testament. And she is not satisfied simply to introduce the worship of her god, particularly Baal, but she brings a bunch of priests from her home country, Sidon, 250 of them, to oversee the Baal worship in the kingdom of Israel. And even that is not enough. She wants to do away with any Yahweh worship, the true Lord and King of Israel. And so she begins to set out to exterminate the prophets and teachers and priests of God in Israel. So Ahab and Jezebel, 
Things are bad under their rule and reign. They are as evil as you can get. They are the Bonnie and Clyde of the Old Testament. They are the Boris and Natasha chasing down moose and squirrel. Or in the short, as John Ralphio from Parks and Rec would say it, they are the worst. That's who they are. Now, who is this Baal character that they love to worship so much? Jezebel wants everyone to worship him. Baal is the god of rain and fertility. Baal was supposed to make the crops grow so that the nation would be rich and so that they would have many, many children and flourish. And as a part of this, they had these wonderful traditions, and it's no wonder people were attracted to this form of worship in which they would perform sex acts in front of the god Baal to show off their sexual prowess as an act of worship and as a means of trying to help Baal become more fertile himself. This apparently attracted a number of folks who thought this was a cool way to worship. There was other ways of worship that were even more degrading, though, such as child sacrifice. And so Israel is in a bad way. It's really, really bad. The days of Israel at this point are evil. Yes, as evil as today, and perhaps far worse, for this is the very people of God that are doing this. Now, there's an abrupt change, abrupt change that happens in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. We come to the end of chapter 16 and assume, when you read your Bible, you assume that we're moving on to something else as we move from chapter headings. But those who uh, put the, the Bible together in the, its early, in the early centuries after Jesus, often many of them, when they put the chapter headings and the verse headings, they did not necessarily service well. And in fact, some of the places in which they put those breaks actually obscure the interpretation and the meaning of the word. The ending of 1 Kings 16 is a good point of this. You must ignore the little yawning gulf of the centimeters of white in your Bible between the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17. 17.1 is supposed to go with the ending of chapter 16. Everything is dark and bad and gloomy. It's awful. Boom. God's prophet is suddenly there. It is supposed to slap you across the face. No introduction do we get about Elijah. All we know is a little bit of, he's from this one city. That's all we know from Tishbe. We don't find about, uh, about Elijah's background. Does he have a wife and kids? We don't know about his Myers-Briggs or his Enneagram number. We have no information about him. Which prophet school did he go to? He is simply and suddenly there, standing in the gap in between God's people and God's plans in the evil that is being led by Ahab and Jezebel. And he, as soon as he shows up, he walks into the scene essentially talking. He walks into the scene, how he got access to the king, but as soon as he walks onto the platform, he says this, no more rain for you. You don't even get dew in the morning. No more rain, no more wet. Now, by the way, we're gonna have a long introduction this morning to try to set us up for the rest of the series, and so bear with me for a few more minutes. This proclamation is laying down the gauntlet in two different ways. This proclamation, there's no more rain. First, By doing this, he is saying that this is the covenant curse on the people of God. Elijah is saying that Yahweh is going to inflict covenant discipline upon his very own covenant-breaking people. In fact, Moses in the law 
expresses twice, both Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, very specifically says that if you worship other gods, I will shut the heavens down so that there will be no rain and that the ground will not produce any fruit for you. In other words, God is willing to use ecology to correct his people's false theology. If they love sin more than his salvation and his provision, then he would shut the heavens so they would cry out to him. He will bring hardship into the lives of his people so that they may return in repentance back to him. You see, God disciplines those he loves. So he brings discipline to return us to him. But in returning us to him and in disciplining us, often what he does is he goes after the very things that we have sought instead of him. God loves to squash the competitions in our, competition in our hearts. He will, not, he will not tolerate us having dalliances and playing footsie with other gods. For he is a jealous God, and so he pursues those who run from him to draw them back. And his discipline is often, what he does is he goes to crush the idols in our life. And so if we love, we're all about our, our personal experience and our beauty and our health, perhaps he will remove that from us to remind us what we really need. Perhaps we'll even push our face into what he's done to our idols. Remember what, what God did when the people of Israel, when Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, and they immediately they begin worshiping an idol calf. Moses comes down. He has them crush the golden calf into a powder, and then he says, you will drink it now. Yikes. So God is merciful enough, though, but his mercy is often a severe one where he will not allow our idols to continue to lead us astray. And so, therefore, the second thing we see God is throwing down is he is declaring war against Baal. He is bringing his covenant curse of discipline on his own people, but he's also declaring war against Baal. One of my, I, I've, I've always remembered it for as, a, as a kid. You remember the old school Bugs Bunny when Bugs Bunny would be fighting Elver Fudd and he would do something to him and Bugs Bunny would look at, this, at the screen, he would break the wall and he would look at you and he would go, you know, of course... This means war. That is what God is declaring on Baal. Remember, Baal is the God of what? Rain. In other words, God is showing up on, this, on the place and he is saying, oh, you're the storm God. <laughs> Let me deal with you right where you are at. He's going to go right after this alleged God. He's going to say, I'm going to attack your specialty. You may have a doctorate in rain, but I can shut you down. And so even though the leaders of God's people are pumping the raw sewage of paganism into Israel, and it looks as if Baalism, with all its sexuality and sensuality and disgustingness, there is encouragement here. That God loves his people so much that he says, I will fight for my bride, for my church. I will crush her gods. I will purge her idols. I will move the, the, those who are evil from their midst. I will not allow evil to run off with my beloved one. And therefore, I will make war against those things that entice them away from me. And so Yahweh is sending Elijah the prophet into the gap. And this prophet's very name, Elijah, his very name is emblematic of the whole emphasis of what we're going to be looking at over the, this summer, early part of the summer, as we look at the work of prophets of Elijah and Elisha. The name Elijah literally means, my God is Yahweh. The whole point of Elijah's life is this, which God will you serve? Baal or Yahweh, the true God of Israel? And the big idea that we are hitting in this series is this, the Lord 
is the true God. And the call to God's people, to the call to the church on this side of the cross is the same thing. We must put our idols aside and return to Yahweh and to Yahweh alone. And so that finally brings us to our section today in 1 Kings chapter 17, 2 through 24. Now I used all that time, and so buckle up. We're going to go fast. Three scenes that are meant to be a direct confrontation to Baal, to indict the people of God, and ultimately to tell us who the true God is. This is the prophet's releasing the canon of God's opening salvo of war. Here they are, first scene. We see the prophetic challenge of God's provision, verses 2 through 9 of chapter 17. Here's what it says. And the word of the Lord came to him. This is God speaking to Elijah. What we're going to see is Elijah doesn't speak at all. God's going to speak through the life of Elijah as much as he speaks through the mouth of Elijah. Here's what he says to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan, and you shall drink from the brook, and I, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there, to feed you. Now, we normally think of, of God speaking through, directly through the mouth of prophets, that their job is to show up and say, thus saith the Lord. But God does not simply speak through the mouth of prophets. He also speaks through their very life and to the, in the lives of those around them. And this first scene, we see that God simply speaks by saying, I am going to provide for my servant even in the midst of a famine. In this first scene, God flaunts his control and his ability to provide even while he's bringing difficult circumstances. Yahweh is the one who controls the rain. He can take it away. But God can also provide for his people in the midst, even in the very midst of his discipline. And in fact, he's willing to provide in some very, very strange ways. For example, let me just show you this. Just walk through it. First, how does God feed Elijah? He feeds him using ravens. Now, wait a second. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 5, and Deuteronomy 14, 14, 4, tell us that ravens are unclean birds. No good Jewish boy is supposed to touch a raven. And now a raven is going to be the thing that brings him food. And then let's also think about how do ravens get food? What are they? They are scavengers. Elijah, I'm going to feed you via a raven. Now, don't think about where he got the food. Just cook it really, really well. You want really well done food and, and eat up. So what does God provide? God is willing to provide in the strangest possible ways through an unclean bird. Those things that we would look at and be stunned by. What, you're going to provide for me through this? Then we see that God, in the bizarreness of his provision, then allows providentially the brook that Elijah is, 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 is living by to dry up. You would think that, I mean, God, you're the one who called them there. You're the God who is feeding Elijah via birds, which is a rather bizarre way to to provide for somebody. You're the God who can split the Red Sea. You can back up the Jordan River. Can't you, like, you know, bring some water up from a crack in the ground? And yet, it's God's difficult providence. God's ways are strange. But never mind. 
let's not be too concerned because God immediately, as soon as the brook dries up, says, I will provide again. But then God, in his provision, sends Elijah to a bizarre place. Did you catch it? The word of the Lord tells him to go to Zarephath, which is in the country of Sidon. Now, whose hometown is Sidon? Jezebel. This is crazy town. This is where Jezebel is from. Her daddy is the king. The worship here is pornographic. This is Baal's home court. And God is saying, I'm going to stick it right in Baal's eye. Not only can I silence the reins and rather render him mute, but I can actually send you onto his very home court and feed you in his lands. But even more bizarrely, who does God send Elijah to? A widow. A widow in Iron Age, in the Iron Age, didn't attend night school and get a good job. They don't gain computer skills and nail down a position on a, a staff somewhere. Uh, no, a widow then couldn't open up a kitty care and provide a, a place for the children of all the other working women as a means of uh, helping herself exist in this world. No, to be a widow in that day and age was a dead-end street. It was to live a hand-in-mouth existence. And as we're going to see in a few minutes in the, as the verses go on, that she is actually preparing a meal that is going to be her last. She is essentially starving. If one actually had to choose between ravens and widows, you might choose the ravens. And yet, what does God do? I will provide. I will provide. A dirty bird, a dried up brook, a crazy place of sin, and a dying woman. These are the means that God can use to provide for his people. One commentator named Ralph Davis, who is the best has the best commentary on 1 Kings, says this, is this not vintage Yahweh? Who else would ever design a way to, you, to provide for his people using unclean things and the unlikely to be the sustainers of his servants? Who am I to object if God delights to use dirty birds and hopeless women? We should, however, adore and worship the God who can use such creativity and such resourcefulness to help his people even in the midst of their difficulties. He is saying, yes, I may discipline you, Israel. Oh, but I can provide. I can provide. And so God is saying in the life of his prophet Elijah, it's as if God is saying, yes, by my hand, you're experiencing the difficult of famine. It is by my hand that you're experiencing such severe mercies. It is by my hand. You know, the original audience of 1 Kings is who were sent into exile in Babylon. I have sent you into exile. But it is also by my hand that I will provide for you. It is also by my hand that I will care for your every need. Baal can't provide for you. But I, I can stack the deck against me. You're going to see this next week again. And I can still provide. And so the question, and by the way, we don't have time for much illustration and application this morning. We're moving through. We're setting the playing field for weeks to come. But simply we'll ask some goading questions as prophets often do. The question before Israel, before Elijah, and before you as God's church is, will you trust him? Even when he sends you into seasons of discipline, will you lean upon his care and will you depend upon him for your every need? And what does dependence look like? Oh yes, Elijah obeys and that's wonderful, but actually we learn dependence from the pagan woman. We pick up again in verse 10 reading of the woman in Zarephath, verse 10 through 16. And so he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called her and said, oh, and bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. 
And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her, he and her household ate for many days and the jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Notice the nature of the dependence that we are called to have. It's the nature of the dependence of this Gentile woman. The Lord says, do not fear. Go and give your last of your bread to my servants. Obey and then feed yourself. Give, give of your hand your first fruits of sorts. Give of this to me and to my servant first. But God's command, he's so gracious. It comes with a promise. The jar will never be empty. And so she had to trust God's promise. This is dependence. Will we trust God's promise that he will provide, even in the midst of hardship, and obey him anyways? She had to, what do we call this? This is what surrender is. So that she could receive that which she could not see. She had to lay down what she had. This is what it means to be converted, frankly. To take life out of your hands and to lay it in God's hands and say, my future, my well-being, my life, I entrust it to you. I will obey you. And now notice this. Does God provide? Absolutely. He does provide. But does he provide by bringing in a bunch of donkeys with bags of flour on their back and vats of oil? No. Every day, she had to get up and she had to check the jar and she had to check the flour. And behold, God's provision never ran dry. This is dependence. The dependence that God calls his people to. And you know, in the Lord's Prayer that Will's going to teach you this summer, it says, give us this day our daily bread. It doesn't say, give me my retirement's daily bread today. In other words, he calls you to live in obedience today, and he says, I will provide for you. I will stake my life on the promises of God's word, and I entrust that he will provide for me until he takes me home. So in this, we see not just God's ability and promise to provide, but we also see that Yahweh is so good, right? He's so good. He provides not only for his servant, Elijah, but he provides for this poor widow and her son as well. God is good. But I want to ruin this for you in our second point. You see, I want you to see in the second major point that what's behind these scenes is God, is God is saying something to his people, Israel. Here we see the prophetic poke of God's goodness. We've already read verses 10 through 16. What do we see? Elijah is headed into Baalsville. This is Gentile land. And here, one of the Baal's subjects will trust Yahweh's word and as a result, find that Yahweh will sustain her on a daily basis. In this passage, we see the simple, faithful, obedient trust of the word of Yahweh, but not by an Israelite, by a pagan, by a Gentile. And in this passage, we also see the wideness of God's mercy and the grandness of his grace, not poured out to one of the Israelite widows, of, of which there were probably many, but poured out upon a Gentile widow. And, that, and the point is this, that God's goodness is given to the outcast, 
He loves to pour his grace out upon the lowly and the outsider and the forgotten and those who would appear to be God-forsaken. God invites the outcast, and he sets his love on the outsider. But this scene in Zarephath, this is good news, but it's also God poking the people of Israel right in the eye. He is saying, look at the trust of a pagan that you don't have. And look at the grace that I will pour out on outsiders instead of you, because you have not heeded my words, and you have chased after false gods. You know, Jesus, his very first sermon that he ever preached in his hometown His hometown was Nazareth, and he had been doing some miracles uh, in the Gentile lands, and the people back home had heard about this, and so Jesus arrives back home, kind of boy celebrity, arrives back at his small little hometown, and they want him to do wondrous stuff, and Jesus looks at him, and he says he refuses, and then they ask why. Here's what he says, Luke chapter chapter 4, verse 25, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow and what was their response? Verse 28, and when they heard this, these things in all the synagogue, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and actually what they try to do is they grab Jesus and they try to throw him off a cliff but he escapes. That is angry. They were so ticked off by what Jesus said they were going to kill him. Now, what did a mere little seemingly anecdotal comment about a story from the Old Testament, why did that tick these people off so badly? It's because they understood what he was saying. What he was saying is this. There's plenty of widows in Israel who are valid diaconal projects during Elijah's time, and yet God has directed his love and his grace upon the pagans and the Gentiles. Why has he done that? It's because you have rejected him. And Jesus is showing back up and saying, saying this, I have gone and done miraculous things for the Gentiles because in my very homeland, the Israelites, those who have been religious leaders have rejected me. In other words, at sometimes in which God's grace extended to others is also his judgment to another. Let me give you a very simple illustration of what this might look like. A couple weeks ago, I had a snack out for a, one of my kids, a snack that would have been very desirable. And yet I had one particular, this one particular child does not do a very good job listening and heeding my voice, really ever. And so I had set the snack out and I said, hey, child, your snack is ready. No, no acknowledgments, no coming. Hey, hey, it's time to come eat your snack. It's going to go bad if you don't eat it now. Uh, keep pl- keeps playing, no acknowledgement. One more time, hey, baby, this is it. You got to come eat your snack. No acknowledgement. So I look at the next kid and I go, you want the snack? Yes, this is God's grace to one is sometimes God's judgment to another. And you know what happened when that child later realized that I had given their snack away to another sibling? Outrage and rage and wrath. The folks at Nazareth had quick minds. They could follow Jesus' logic, and they were rather sensitive nerds to catch his innuendo that they have rejected him, and they have rejected God's word, and so he's going elsewhere. Yahweh's grace is being extended through Elijah beyond Israel because that grace, which has been extended to Israel time after time after time, has been rejected. Now, this is a sobering personal word. And I've been speaking to so many of our our high school students the last couple weeks, and I'd say it again, but also to anybody here. you You cannot continue as one of God's covenant people going on despising God's word indefinitely. And believing that there will not be consequences, ultimately, he will allow you to walk into the darkness that you seem so readily willing to choose. 
So certainly there is a challenge for us individually, but this text is actually speaking more corporately. We have to begin to think and read about the word of God, not simply for us as individuals. And so this is going to be hard for, you, for this to land on you, but this is about the church corporately. That is the challenge here. And so I'll speak to the, our church, to King's Chapel, but maybe speak more broadly about the American church. Did you know that the growth of Christianity in the world is exploding in the global south? It's exploding. It's exploding in the most impoverished and in places where there's persecution, the Middle East and South America and India and China. It is exploding in those places. Meanwhile, in America, did you know that in America we're in the greatest religious shift since the Great Awakening? It's called the de-churched movement. It's been going on for probably 20 or 25 years, and the stats are only now, they're coming, those who are academics and studying these things are beginning to realize it. I spent a number of years of my life in Orlando. It's where Meredith and I uh, met and did seminary. And the pastor of the church that we attended there wrote this for an online magazine. He said, the greater Orlando church, I'll just give you one example of this de-church movement. He said this, the greater Orlando area comprises seven counties. In those seven counties, according to Barner Research, 42% or nearly 2 million people in the area used to go to church, but no longer do. Some of them have left church and still claim to hold orthodox Christian views, and some have deconverted entirely. And this was before the pandemic. So the question is this. Are things difficult in the church of Jesus Christ today because the world is just persecuting us so badly, or is it because we chose to reject God? Because we ran after the the health and wealth and the power and the prosperity. Why Why is it that people are running from us in droves? What is the average Christian in this room, we might ask more specifically, what is it that we look to for dependence? And what are the idols that we would say that the American church has? I'm not gonna be stupid enough to dive into that because I might press on yours. So you'll have to figure it out. But there is a passage of scripture that we often read that talks about this. It's this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. And most of the time, people read it and they refer to America with it. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. But do you understand the context of 1 and 2 Chronicles and 1 and 2 Kings? It is not to the United States of America. It is a message of prophecy to God's church. And therefore, the question is this. It is less about an issue of what is going on culturally around us, and it is more about the rot that is sitting in our own churches. Is that about America, or is that about the church? How you answer that question will reflect very much about what you think we need to repent of. And my guess is us who has to lead. Every revival in the history of Christianity in the last 2,000 years has started not with things going on culturally and suddenly a bunch of non-believers becoming believers. It's when the church renews itself and repents and trusts in Jesus again. This is the call of prophets. It's to the people of God. Last thing. Last thing. You're like, oh, she just took a great story. You just took a really great story about God providing through the oil and the flour for this woman. I love that Sunday school story and you have ruined it. You have made it mean and prophetic and gross. Well, let me give you some good news. The prophetic offer of God's salvation, verses 17 through 24. Good gracious, we got to go. After this, the son of man, the mistress of the house, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house became ill. 
And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him in from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him down on his bed. And he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself out upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Here's the problem. Yes, her son dies, and that is really severe and difficult. But in that act, it brings up some severe questions. God has essentially promised to this woman that he's going to provide for her in the midst of the famine and for her family. And yet now her son, got, her son dies. And so the question is this. Was, has God pulled back on his promise? Will he be faithful? Or it could be even like this. Is God like Baal? Is God spasmodic and capricious and unpredictable where he promises good things and provides the oil and the flour one moment and then steals our children from us the next? That is the question before us. And what is the answer? The answer has two parts. Two parts. First is the stretching out. What does Elijah do? He takes the son up and he lays him down and he stretches out on him three times. Now, most scholars, if we don't understand why he does this, we can all kind of point to, hey, oh, maybe it means this, or maybe it reflects to that. But here's what we can know, that the only time that the phrase stretched out is used is in John chapter 21 in the New Testament. This other phrase, stretched out, is when Jesus speaks to Peter, and he speaks about where Peter's life is going to end up. And he says, Peter, at the end of your life, you will be stretched out. And what is he speaking of? The fact that Peter will die on a cross. You have to surrender yourself is what he's saying. To stretch out is to surrender yourself before God and saying, listen, I give my life. This is the image of what you do if a policeman pulls a gun on you, right? Hands out, lay down on the ground, you surrender. And that is the act that Elijah is doing. He is saying, don't take this boy, take me instead. If you'd imagine if you were the parent, he is not the parent here, but he loves this child. And so he lays out and he stretches out. Third, there's an illustration from a good pastor friend who said this. I've been there. He said, I had a seven-year-old who had cancer, and he was going in for a severe, severe surgery. And there was great concerns whether he would survive. And he says, remember his crying out. He literally stretched out on his face before the Lord, and he said to me this. God, if this is about me, if you're trying to wrench idols out of my life, if this is about my sin, don't punish my son for my sins. And he surrendered before the Lord. Don't take me instead. Take me instead. Did you see what the mother said when her son was struck down? She said, do you, she said is this about my sin? Is my son being taken to me because of my sin? And that is the question. Is the boy being taken because of his sin? The answer might be her sin might be Yes. But he, no one can pay for his sins or her sins. And Elijah can't revive this boy on his own because Elijah has his own sins to pay for. What does God answer? Ah, he said, I will revive this boy. 
but it'll come upon the receipt of my son who is coming, whose hands will be stretched out, and who will be taken, and he will cover your sins. This is your God. In other words, what's the message to Israel in exile? The prophetic voice is this. Is it our sin that's led us to be in the exile and in the famine? And the answer is probably yes. But there is a God who will send his son and his Messiah who will stretch himself out to cover you. But it doesn't end there, right? It's not just cross, it's also resurrection. God answers Elijah's prayer and the boy is raised to life. You know, this is the first count of a resurrection in the whole Bible, of someone actually being raised from the dead. And the point of this question is this, of of this whole scene is, is Yahweh, like Baal, is he defenseless in the face of death? Is he defenseless in the face of death? You see, Baal, sorry to get so nerdy, Baal in the pantheon of Canaanite gods had only one god who could defeat him. It was the god Mot, who was the god of death. And so the god of death, every once in a while, would destroy Baal, which is why they thought that famines happened. Here's what Ian Proven, a commentator, said, it is one thing to rescue people from the jaws of death, but can he, Yahweh, do anything when death has clamped its tight jaws and swallowed the victim up? He can act across the border from Israel and Sidon, but is there a border, the border of death, that ultimately he cannot cross, a kingdom which he has no power? When faced by Mott, must the Lord, just like Baal, bow the knee? Is God stymied by death? And the answer is a resounding no. No, this God, Mott or Baal, has no power over this God. Death cannot hold him. And so when God's people, even when we enter into death and suffering and sorrow, when it seems as if we are separated from the hand of God, they can know, they can know this, that God can reach into death itself and pull them back out. And so Yahweh is proven to be more powerful than all the gods of Canaan. And he is shown to be the one who will keep his promises by restoring this boy to life. And what is the ultimate proof that our God is not stopped by death. We said a couple weeks ago, right, at Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <laughs> but we can't, we don't, let's just not jump too far ahead. You see, this, this account is just an example, right? It's just, an, it's not that Elijah went out and raised all the believers. He only raised this one child. And Jesus didn't raise everybody, did he? I mean, we get, what, like three examples of Jesus' power over death, Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain, and Lazarus? But Jesus doesn't raise anybody else from the dead. Why? But you go, well, we have the resurrection, so that's good. So why are these little foretastes in here? Why are these pointers in the Bible at all? Well, you know what? I think sometimes, sometimes the foreshadowing of what's to come maybe packs a little bit more punch for us than if we just go straight to the, the ideal thing itself. Let me, let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Imagine a, a college co-ed um, who is going to walk across uh, campus. And so a young man is going, okay, hey, I'm going to, do you mind if I, I walk you across? I'm not trying to be, you know, chauvinistic or patronizing, but you have to walk all the way across campus to your dorm. You mind if I just, I walk with you, make sure you're okay? And they have this wonderful walk home, and they have this nice visit, and they even stop at a, at a, at a, quickly at the cafeteria, and they grab a drink as they're going across, and, 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 and he gets her to her dorm, and he says goodnight, and they have had this wonderful conversation, seemingly impromptu across the way. He goes back home, doesn't seem think much of it. It's just a sweet night. But the next day he gets a note. Let's say his name is Tom. And the note says this, Dear Tom, I want to thank you for being so considerate for walking me back to my dorm last night. It was so very gallant of you. Oh, gallant, he thought. 
the word, and, and I so, so appreciate it, and she underlines so, so. So I, I so, so appreciated getting to talk and speak to you about our plans for life, about various ways in which we hope God will use us, and I hope we'll be able to, be, we'll be able to continue our conversation more in the future. Ooh. I want you to know, I, I know you have better things to do than read silly notes from a girl, but I just want you to know how thankful I am for you. Warmly, Brenda. Now, is this a marriage proposal? Is this the fullness of love blossomed? No. But you know what Tom's going to do with that note? He's going to carry that bad boy around. And he's going to go to his medieval history class, and he's going to reread it in medieval history class, because who wants to pay attention to medieval history class? And, he, and he's going to tell his, his friends about it. Sorry, Dan and Nadia. And, and, and he's going to reread it a few times, and he's going to tell his friends about it, and he's going to, he's going to read it again later, and he's going to think about that word warmly. He's going to go, you know, warm is not a cold phrase. That's, warmly is really great. And he's going to just let that, that adverb wash over him. And Tom, the next morning, again, he's going he's gonna to be sitting at his desk, and maybe he's just finished his devotions, and he prays, and he commits his day to the Lord, and then he reaches in and grabs that note again, and he notices the so underlined twice. Ooh, so. You know, this is not the fullness of love blossomed like the resurrection is. But these little reminders and these little previews tell us what God is up to. It incites us in the face of death. And in this world, when we live between the first resurrection and the second resurrection, where we see very little resurrection going on, we have these little foretastes that it reminds us our God is alive. And he is active. And yes, this is not the whole enchilada, but this might be the salsa and the chips beforehand. And it reminds us and it points us forward to as, Jesus, and as God says in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And so what a powerful hint it is for God's people in the Old Testament and for God's people now that Jesus says, even in the midst of difficulty that he has brought, you can rest in his hand. Yes, the days are evil. We have failed. We may be being disciplined, but God is still here. God is still defending his people. He is still providing from his hand, and he is giving us an assurance, even in the face of death, that we belong to him. And so the call upon this church is to take up once again the profession of the widow of Zarephath who said this, and now I know that the word of the Lord is true. Those who have ears, let them hear. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, would you take this, uh, we heard about a, a body that had no bones. Well, this is a, uh, a bony body that had no flesh. This was an academic one, and it was full of crunch. And so, Lord, I pray that you take the crunch without much illustration and without much application points. And would you teach your people how to apply? Spirit of the living God, would you, would, would you come and hover over and call and convict those places where we have chosen to depend upon the idols and the gods of this world, where we have done that individually, and Lord, where we have done that as a church. And Lord, I will pray a dangerous prayer, and for those in this room, if you want to pray it with me, Lord, if, it, if you must, would you pound my idol into dust to give me more of you? But Lord, even in the midst of your discipline, will you show me that you are alive and that even when it feels like you are killing me <laughs> in your discipline, that you will prove to me and show me and remind me once again that you're the God who raises to life.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.